Welcome to the Drop the Mic podcast, where we'll dive into conversations with some of the music industry's most established professionals. Like all of our episodes, what you hear today has been created and curated by Stanford students who are breaking their way into the music scene. I'm Jay LaBeouf, and I lead Stanford University's music industry initiatives. Whether you're aspiring to launch your career in the music industry, are already a music pro, or just curious to learn more, we've got you covered. Keep listening to hear live music expert Greg Patterson, indie band Sure Sure, and venue owner Justin Cantor share their highlights on just how drastically the pandemic has changed the live music industry and affected the people that rely on it. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get into the conversation. Welcome to this installment of the Stanford Music Industry Podcast. My name is Elliot Dauber. My name is Ben Early. And I'm Max Klotz. In this episode, we will be discussing the live music industry, focusing on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on artists, touring, venues, and festivals. This episode addresses many different aspects of the current state of the live music industry. Our guests will be Greg Patterson, current Chief Strategy Officer for Veeps, a VIP ticketing platform. Chris Beachy and Charlie Glick of the band Sure Sure, and Justin Cantor, who is the owner of Le Poisson Luge in NYC, as well as vice president of the National Independent Venue Association. Live music makes up a larger share of music revenue than ever before, but in the world of COVID-19, we're having to change how we think about live performances. We've all been at home for the past few months, and I'm sure most of you have been missing seeing your favorite bands live. Today we'll talk about how artists and organizations in the live music industry are being affected by these unprecedented circumstances and how some are coping with it. Our first guest is Greg Patterson. Greg has worked in the music industry for over 20 years at companies such as Eventbrite, Wonderful Union, and Q Ticketing. He's currently the Chief Strategy Officer at Veeps, a company that has recently shifted its focus to ticketing live-streamed events. So, big picture, how do you see the live-slash-touring industry changing from the pandemic? How do you think that concerts post-pandemic will be different? Yeah, I mean, that's effectively the question. You know, the best we could do is, is probably think about what happens like in the immediate future. The first rooms <clears throat> or concert venues that will open will probably be rooms between, you know, 100 and 500 capacity. And they'll have to reduce their, their overall capacity of what they can allow in the room. So if you start to think about that and think about the ecosystem around, you know, music, the first tours that are going to go out, the first shows are going to be able to happen bands are going to be faced with the decision of staying home and not working or getting out on the road and playing probably a room much, much smaller than what they used to play. So if you were a touring band who used to do a thousand cap rooms, well, the thousand cap rooms aren't available. You can't play them. Like You can't have audiences that size. So your option then is to play a 500 cap room for two nights in a row. Or if you could play a 3000 cap room, do you do four nights in a row? So you could sort of start to go downstream and go, well, what happens to the band that was, you know, normally play that 500 cap room? Well, 
that band's now playing a 200 cap room and, and somewhere somebody gets squeezed. But you'd have to be a band who's made a significant amount of money to be able to stay home and just ride this thing out, which, you know, most bands don't. You know, they, they're, they're out on the road, they're making money, they have crews, they have families that are dependent on them, both their real family at home and their touring family. So they're left with little options. So I think that's when you think about things like the live streaming, will that have a lasting effect? And I think that, that that'll be a very interesting piece to monitor because I, I believe that artists are inherently resilient. So we'll certainly figure this out, but I don't think anybody has any clue what that looks like. But, you know... Right now, you know, the industry in two years could look completely different than what it looked like two years ago. And, you know, it's very painful right now for a lot of people. In particular, you know, I know a lot of people who have been affected in one way or another. And, you know, we want everybody to survive. But historically speaking, the industry hasn't always been super friendly to artists. Innovation and disruption hasn't always benefited artists in the best way. So there is an element in my mind at least, there's an opportunity here for artists to really balance some of that out, you know, and maybe change some of the dynamics and change some of the rules about how things are done. Tell us about your new role at Veeps. What is their mission and approach to this new live music scene? Yeah, so so my role at Veeps is I'm the chief strategy officer. I joined the company about a month and a half ago, a month ago, after leaving Eventbrite. And the basic story of Veeps is that it was, you know, an artist monetization platform for about the past three and a half years. So they were working with touring artists to help them manage and fulfill their VIPs on their own. So whereas, you know, within Wonderful Union, one of the companies I founded, we were very services. You know, we would send somebody on the road with Justin Timberlake or Backstreet Boys and do everything white glove. Veeps is really like an empowerment tool for artists to allow them to do to take control and do a lot of this themselves. So when, you know, if you're not a Justin Timberlake or you're not a Drake, Veeps is a, is a way for you to also increase, you know, your revenue sources without, you know, all the overhead costs that can come with, you know, some of the larger companies. So what my role in the company is is I work with Benji and Joel, two of the co-founders, along with Kyle and Sherry, the other founders, to navigate these early days of a startup and prioritize and make, you know, quick decisions about how we grow the company and where we take the company in the future. I mean, I think we have a unique opportunity right now where we're able to help artists generate revenue. It'll be interesting to see how this fits into the pie when artists are able to go back on the road. So in the immediate term, we're focused very heavily on helping as many artists as we can get access to a great experience with their fans and uh, we see it working. It's very exciting. Uh, and I think it'll give us an opportunity to think about the future beyond that. Do you think that these paid for live streams are a viable way for artists to make a living, especially after COVID-19 or is this simply a life preserver to get through these uncertain times? I mean, right now it's the, it's the only way this is the single way that an artist can take action, pull a lever, and generate revenue and connect with their audience. Now, sure, you can go on Twitch and you can go on Instagram and you can go on Facebook and you can uh, obviously connect with your audience and probably connect with a broader audience than your core audience. But monetizing, that's a challenge. And 
like at most things in, in the music business, if you were to monetize on some of those platforms, they're taking as much as half of the artist's money for the pleasure of reaching their audience. So I don't know that live streaming per se is necessarily the future. I think it's part of the future. But I think the bigger question is, where do direct-to-consumer platforms fit in the future? Where does something like Veeps or you know Wonderful Unions or other platforms out there that are starting to build tools directly for artists, where do those fit? And how do you start to level the playing field? Because what we've discovered is artists are driving demand. You know, Artists are driving these ticket sales. When an artist puts a show on Veeps and they push it like through their socials and they talk to their fans, on average, we're seeing $10,000 generated for an artist on a single live stream. It can go up you know, into the six figures, mid six figures for some acts. And we think that this is just early days. And we're seeing people find ways to do it repeatedly. So I think this is a medium for, for or a time for artists to think about what they do in broader terms than just go on the stage and play the shows for the for the for the tour or to go in the studio and make the record. So we really want to help artists bring like up level this experience and connect with their fans and create meaningful connections and relationships and extend that relationship through this period. And what do you think about festivals? Um, you mentioned previous conversations that they are already really unstable money-wise. Do you think that companies that put on festivals will be hesitant to start throwing them again, even when it is viable due to increased uncertainty that people will buy tickets or that they'll be able to be financially stable? The question is probably more, has almost nothing to do with COVID, but COVID probably exposed, which is just the, the financial dynamics of festivals are extremely challenging. You know, you kind of saw this unravel with Fire Festival and then Pemberton. And prior to all of that, you know, you could go to a ticketing company and get a bunch of money for the ticketing rights and then turn around and go use that money to book a big artist or an agency who's never booked a show with you ever. And you could get like a tier one artist as long as you're willing to wire half the money. So that kind of allowed these kind of novice or younger promoters to to you know flood into the market and spring up these festivals which then you know increase the rates at which artists were going to be booked for and put stress on everybody and then it all kind of imploded the financials just couldn't support the costs associated with with putting on a festival so unless you're you know live nation aeg and maybe danny Weber presents the ability to put on a, a profitable festival was less and less and less likely for most folks out there. There's probably only a handful. And a lot of the independent festivals, you know, in that 30,000 person range were very challenged. So all that to say, like prior to COVID, you started to see these two trends. Like you started to see these micro festivals that really were centered around artist curation that were down in like the 10,000-ish person festival size. And then a lot of consolidation higher up the market. So... As we come back out the other side, getting 10,000 people in a field together under pretty unsanitary conditions is pretty risky. It might be more of a question of whether or not you can get insurance than whether or not you can get ticket buyers. I think at some point, the festivals will come back. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I might be being kind of a Debbie Downer about it, but I think festivals were, were challenged prior. COVID, if you weren't one of the big festivals, 
I, I don't think COVID has done any favors for anybody trying to put on a medium-sized to mid-sized festival. With that said, people love festivals. So at some point, they will come back. And maybe this is the benefit of the larger festivals like Bottle Rock and Coachella and Bonnaroo is that they will be able to kind of bring the market back. So as much as people may have thought that consolidation was bad, uh, the fact that, that there's that many festivals that are owned by companies who, who have the beads and the weight to throw around might actually be the thing that saves and brings the festival market back from where it's at right now. But again, I mean, who knows? Like, you know, you can say all this stuff and it's, it's really kind of a who knows. What I do know is that it's a really tough model, period. As far as venues, how long do you think concert venues can stay alive without performances? When people go back to playing shows, will there be a void in the number of venues that can play? The venue space is probably the most curious and interesting right now. You know, you're, you're going to have an issue with inventory. How many clubs are able to survive? Is there enough stages for people to play? Uh, it's a real thing right now. There are legendary venues, legendary venues that are possibly not going to be there, which is kind of a, unimaginable to think about. You know, like some of these rooms have been around for 30, 40 years, longer in some cases. You know, the fact is hardly anybody owns their building. You know, just like most people don't own their house outright. You know, you borrow money from a bank to pay for your house. So same thing with the clubs. You know, if if you do happen to own your, your building, chances are you owe a bank for that. If you're not open, you're not able to pay for your, your lease or pay the bank. So you have that threat. And, you know, eventually rubber hits the road there. So... And then the other side is, that unless you had, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks on the PPP, which is like a flawed system in and of itself. If you didn't have a pretty experienced tax attorney or accountant on staff, navigating the bureaucracy associated with getting PPP was super challenging. Layer the fact that in order to keep the PPP, you had to keep all your staff on. But most bars had to lay people off immediately. They were the first ones done. First ones out. So... The math just doesn't check out. You know, you start looking at reopening and, the, and, you know, Texas, I think they allowed people to reopen with 25% capacity. Well, the entire model of a venue resides on maximum capacity in the room to sell alcohol, to pay for all the costs and everything. So to run a bar at 25 capacity, you've got to be paying your staff. Your costs are still there. It just doesn't fucking work. So you might as well not open. The good news is, you know, there's, there's Neva, which is you know, an organization of, of venues from around the country and they really quickly were able to organize and to start lobbying and raising money and trying to really get the attention of of lawmakers to say, hey, like these are cornerstones of culture. We need help. Uh, and they've made some pretty pretty amazing strides. So I'm optimistic that there will be venues. The hope is that we can preserve you know as much of the ecosystem as possible because it's it's absolutely necessary. These rooms are where these artists get their start. You know, it's where, you know, if you think about the Troubadour in Los Angeles, it's where Elton John played his first show in America. You think about First Avenue in Minneapolis, synonymous with Prince. You think about the 930 Club in D.C., like, so cornerstones like the Foo Fighters and the whole punk scene in D.C. All these rooms tell a story. All these rooms have a connection, and they are the entry point for artists who go on to be superstars of the future. So there's a vested interest in keeping these places around. 
and I'm really optimistic and hopeful that we make that happen. Thank you so much for talking with us, Greg. Our next guest is Sure Sure, an experimental pop group based out of LA. The song you're hearing now is one of their newest singles, titled Funky Galileo. Sure Sure found a unique and fun way to combat the limits of playing live music in the pandemic, recently curating a six-night livestream tour in their shared home, playing each night in a different room. The band is composed of Chris Beachy, Charlie Glick, Kevin Farzad, and Michael Coleman. Today we have the privilege of talking with Chris and Charlie, who are both students at Stanford as well. Thanks for coming, guys. Let's start out with some introductions. I'm Charlie, and I play in Sure Sure. I'm Chris, and I, I play piano and keyboards, and I sing as well. I met Chris here, actually, like the first day of school at Stanford. So we have been making music together ever since then. Sweet. It's great to meet you guys. Now let's jump back to the start of the pandemic back in March. I know that you guys were on tour opening for COIN when the pandemic started getting serious in America. What was that experience like? Did you realize at the time that what this was going to mean for your band? Basically, the day before Tampa, they're like, guys, we can't. We reached a consensus that we should just turn around before we even got to Florida and go home. And then we played the first show and then the NBA got canceled and then we drove home. I don't think we knew what the future was going to hold, though. I mean, I knew that there weren't going to be concerts for a while. We were kind of realizing it could be like years. So after having their tour with Coin canceled, these guys came up with the brilliant idea of doing their own tour, streamed from their shared home in L.A. Obviously, it looked a little different than a normal tour, but can you guys walk us through how you approached the so-called home-home tour and how that idea came to fruition? Basically, we marketed it like a real tour, and we, and we had like off days to travel and we made like a whole documentary series about the ven- each venue, but it all came together extremely fast. The whole idea was like, it was a bit that we had to commit to because there's all these little things that happen on tour. Like, like when, you, when and where you do your laundry, our dryer opened the laundry room show. It was kind uh, of like Spinal Tap-esque. Yes. Like we just like applied dumb rock music tropes um, and just like, I know, complaining about the venue staff when we're, we're the venue staff. <laughs> and like, we're like sweeping up afterwards. What did playing for a camera feel like? Was it satisfying? I definitely lost my mind as much as a, a normal show. Just knowing that people were watching. Or like when I, when I sat down to do the show, I was just, you know, I had all the normal like excitement, nervousness, adrenaline, all the stuff that makes you perform like it's a real show. So that didn't really change. Yeah. And you didn't have the crowd feedback. I mean, that's always the best part of a live show is like real time seeing all these people packed together and like singing along. Although sometimes at the end of the stream, if I was like, like, why did like, did people enjoy that? Like, why did we just do that? What, who, who am I, you know? And then I would like go and I just read the comments. On tour, I always like my poop schedule always gets shifted to like, uh, right before we go on stage, like 10 minutes before we go on stage. Normally at home, you know, I'm like 9 9 a.m., 10 a.m., after breakfast kind of guy. But then on tour, it totally flip-flops to like, yeah, 10 minutes before we go on stage. 
And so it was really funny because that happened again on the home home tour. Like I, I, my schedule of uh, bowel movements got co- totally flipped on its head. So in that way, it was pretty similar. So why don't you think more bands are doing similar things? It sounds like this worked out really well for you guys. What is it about Sure Sure that made this mock tour possible? Well, we're lucky that we live together, which made the whole thing possible. And then also we have a pretty like comedic impulse, especially when the four of us are together, especially Mike and Kevin. So it, it, that side of the band personality was like really, it was really fun to put on the home home tour because it was like we were putting on real shows, but it was super comedic too. While Sure Sure did something really unique and cool with the home home tour, they're certainly not the first band to use live streaming to reach fans during the pandemic. A lot of artists are turning to Instagram Live, YouTube Live, and Twitch in order to continue playing music, but most of these platforms don't support ticketing, leaving artists to play for donations. What set Sure Sure's performance apart is that they ticketed it using Veeps, the company Greg Patterson currently works for. Chris and Charlie, what's your perspective on ticketed live streams? Do you think they're a viable source of income for musicians? We saw most people doing Instagram live, but you can't ticket that. And also the sound quality sucks ass. And we just wanted to do like a higher quality version. But the problem, the funny thing is a lot of artists, everybody started doing free live streams. And now a lot of them want to ticket them, but they're running into issues because they train their audience to just expect like a weekly free live stream. So they're trying to figure out how to transition into to ticketing. It's got to become more of a thing because there's not going to be live concerts in so long. The great thing about it is like ticketed live stream stuff is there's no overhead. You don't have any overhead costs unless, I mean, there's some, like I just had to order a a cam link because we want to upgrade the video quality. There's a couple overhead costs, but like it's so much cheaper than going on tour. So given the state of the current industry pre-pandemic, how important do you think touring is to artists at different levels of success? some bands rely on it more like for example if we were in a record deal right now and we had the same amount of streaming that we have currently we'd have to kind of rely on touring to provide a lot of our income there's other avenues of income if you have a publishing deal or like a sync deal and your music's getting placed in tv and and film etc but you can't rely on that it's such a crapshoot so touring for a lot of bands is so important because it's like the most steady and like significant stream of income. The people that are getting the most screwed are, are the touring crews. And like, yeah, yeah, all the crew members who put on the shows but don't like play the music. They're, there's no income for them now. I mean, artists, even in record deals, like they still have some streams of income, but touring crews are, it sucks. So heart goes out to them. Eventually this pandemic is gonna end. And once it's safe to be together again, the venues that survive this will start to reopen. But we're creating all this infrastructure. In the case of Veeps, an entire site and service dedicated to live streaming. Do you guys think that live streaming will continue to be this prominent after life goes back to normal? It's crazy. Hopefully live streaming will be sustainable. I mean, it's kind of cool to think about, like, even once touring resumes, like, you can still make some money doing live ticketed live stream stuff when you're not on tour. So I bet it's going to stick around even after concerts come back. So it remains to be seen what the future of live streaming will be, and if artists like Sure Sure will continue to utilize it even after live touring restarts. I want to thank you guys so much for coming on the show today, and good luck in the upcoming months as we figure out what live music is going to look like in the future. 
Before we go, can you just tell us what you've been working on and what your plans for the rest of quarantine are as a band? Our loose plan right now is to just kind of be a little fluid, more fluid than we were planning and just drop singles. We basically have a breakup album because most of us went through breakups like at the beginning of the year or at end of last year. Like we thought right when quarantine started happening and the, the pandemic hit, we were like, is it like insensitive to release breakup songs? We were very aware of respecting the culture. Like maybe people don't care about that right now. So yeah, I don't know when the next single is probably in early July, I would guess. But it all depends. Like you kind of have to see how your last single's doing. And then that informs like when you want to release the, the following single. So pretty fluid strategy. Otherwise being lazy. But also probably get back to writing. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they opened Griffith Park again, so I can go on like a sweet run again that I used to do. Yeah, that's exciting. Maybe I'll get some inspiration from that. Well, there you have it. That was Chris Beachy and Charlie Glick from Sure Sure, a phenomenal band based in L.A. Check them out on your favorite streaming platform and look out for their new singles coming this summer. Here's a bit more of their new song, Funky Galileo. Our next guest is Justin Cantor, the founder of Le Poisson Rouge, an independent music venue in New York City. He's also the vice president at the National Independent Venue Association, or NEVA, a nonprofit that helps organize independent music venues across the country. We talked to Justin about running a small music venue and challenges these places face in the current pandemic. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us. Our first question is, could you tell us what owning a music venue was like in normal circumstances? And what are some challenges you're dealing with now as the owner of an independent music venue? Yeah, so um, we opened up 12 years ago, 2008, which happened to be during the financial crisis of that decade. I didn't come from any sort of MBA music business or business background whatsoever. I was a cellist. I uh, still am jealous. And so it's kind of learning along the ways. It is a, st- a very stressful business. The margins are very slim. New York is obviously probably not the easiest place to run any kind of small business, but a music venue on top of it, and one that likes to present classical, <laughs> is going to be a real challenge. So it is stressful. And it's a labor of love. And you make it work. The show must go on. You know, sometimes as an operator, you totally forget that there's that show you thought about two months ago that's happening right now. And then the feeling of walking out, your eyes adjusting from the bright lights in the office to the lights of the concert. And then all of a sudden, 700 people singing along to the band on stage. It's like, oh, damn, this is why we did this. You know, and and then there's just magical moments. Crack open a beer and just watch the room come alive and see this wonderful music. And so those are the special experiences that are priceless. Yeah, I bet those moments make it all worth it. Do you have a sense of how long in general you think venues can keep treading water under the current circumstances? Or how long can this go on before we start to see some real attrition in terms of the number of venues still out there? I think if there isn't any sort of concrete relief solutions in the next month, 
you'll see about 50% go down based on some of the reports. And then at least 50% will have zero operating money in the bank. And then I think it's about another five months would be about the, the another 40%. So yeah, <laughs> it's no joke. I mean, businesses can't last forever without paying anything and the rent keeps piling up and the bills aren't being paid and all venue operators are in there. It's survival mode right now. Very few of us have actually totally thrown in the towel, but it's just complete uncertainty. It, it really depends on what kind of relief we're getting, the kind of deals we're able to make with our landlords. And like I said, it's a really tough business to begin with. So there might be a, quite a few operators who are like, screw this. So it's got, it's serious. So we've been doing some research into Neva, which I know you were involved with founding. Could you tell us a little bit about the process and the motivation behind building Neva? And it seems like everything came together fairly quickly in terms of organizing the group. So independent music venues historically have been very isolated from one another. There's no real networking groups or organizations bringing them together and the COVID crisis was an impetus for us all to get together and try to figure out what the hell we can do and be able to communicate and try to figure things out. But also I think on a purely therapeutic level to be able to speak with other like-minded owners and operators and share the challenges that we're all going through. So everyone started coalescing around this independent venue week. I guess it was a week-long national festival um, of a sorts where venues would kind of fly the independent venue flag. We would put shows on that were under the banner of independent venue week throughout the country. So it became a natural breeding ground for these conversations about what's happening with different venues. And, and this guy, Hal Real, who is the owner operator of World Cafe Live in Philadelphia, said, look, this is, might be a time to really organize as independent venue operators and be able to continue these kind of conversations beyond COVID. So of course, when he mentioned that this is something he wanted to do right now, I wanted to be involved. And there's a handful of other operators that really sort of kind of stepped up and took the reins and, and organized this. And from all different parts of the country, Dana Frank is the president of Neva, and she's in Minneapolis with First Avenue, which has been around for 50 years. It was like one of those things, forming a group quickly, there was just a tremendous amount of mutual respect. And I think kind of almost awe for what each other had done in terms of their own venues and growing their scenes locally. There's just that trust and belief in everyone's ability to, to make decisions and that everyone's so smart and knows what they're talking about. We were able to coalesce with now up to, in, in the short period of time, 1,600 venues, raise enough money to get major lobbying muscle in Capitol Hill. So it's been really a great learning experience for me and also something very therapeutic for me, something that gives me something to put my energy in during this time of uncertainty. Yeah, so that's kind of how Neva was created. That's great that you guys were able to accomplish all that so quickly. Could you talk a little bit about what kind of support Neva is providing venues right now? Yeah, Neva takes on a few different roles, I think, for venue operators. On the very basic level, it is the ability to communicate with other operators. 
and gives them a, a forum to try to talk through them as a group. And there's also just the more logistical side of it. Like if we can come up with guidelines as a national organization on how to reopen, on how to organize on a local level, on how to raise funds on a local level, how to determine what our industry impact is with different surveys and, and reports. Those are the other kind of things we can do to add value that makes it worth being a member of NEBA. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are doing a lot to help out these sorts of venues. As a final question, what can the average person or anyone who listens to this podcast do to help this specific cause? Go to this website, saveourstages.com. With a few clicks, you'll be able to contact your representative through the form on, on the site. And as new initiatives come up, that's where we'd um, point everyone. Make noise, let the world know, let the nation know how much music is important to you. And, and people need to remember that these venues, they're the incubators. The scenes start from here. Country music to punk rock to experimental jazz. You filter it down to the music venue or a few of them that was the, the ground zero for all this great music that happened. So if that's eradicated, how is this going to work? So that's why the voices need to be heard. That's why it's really important. All right, Justin, thank you so, so much for making the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thank you. Live music and touring have never been more important to the music business. As we've seen today, the COVID-19 pandemic and the need for social distancing has gutted this industry, affecting ticket vendors, concert venues, and artists themselves. So far, live stream concerts have been the go-to solution for artists, but it remains to be seen whether this is sustainable and what the future of monetizing the medium is. As venues eventually begin opening up, it will be interesting to see if the live music industry snaps back to normal or if it will be changed forever. Will the live stream format stick around or will it prove to be just a temporary phase? We want to thank Greg, Charlie, Chris, and Justin for offering their time and insights to this project. If you're looking to get involved and help live music in your area, you can donate to charities supporting artists and venues and stay at home so that this pandemic can pass and we can get back to in-person concerts as soon as possible. Concludes today's episode of our podcast, Drop the Mic, Music Industry Conversations. Thank you to all of our guests for spending their time with us and sharing their insights and thoughts about how COVID-19 has affected the music industry and how the industry's best are planning on bouncing back. Tune in next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern to hear about managing indie artists and helping them transition from obscurity to celebrity, featuring our friends Michelle Cable, manager of Mac DeMarco. Jack Gallagher, manager of Mount Joy, and Dylan Shanks, manager of Omar Apollo. We're the Stanford students that helped put this season together. To hear all our episodes, check us out on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stay up to date with everything we're working on, including a playlist that features all our musical guests from season one, 
and our social media accounts where we share sneak peeks of what's coming up. Check out our website at dropthemiccast.com. This has been Drop the Mic. Thanks for tuning in. We can't wait to share more with you next week.